You're listening to an MHD Off the Record bonus episode where council member Marquise Harris-Dawson and I, Siobhan Taylor, commemorate the 50th anniversary of hip-hop with an in-depth discussion about the history and impact it has had on L.A. culture. So much history is discussed in regards to the origin of hip-hop in New York and the East Coast, but we wanted to highlight how hip-hop grew and developed here in Los Angeles. We discuss local radio and how Angelinos consumed rap music at a time when most stations refused to play it. We talk about the way hip-hop influenced politics, how rappers and producers from L.A. have transformed not only hip-hop, but even American culture. You'll get to reminisce about the early days of hip-hop with MHD or even get educated on some things you may not have known before, like I did. It's all right here on MHD Off The Record. Okay, so MHD, you grew up in LA at a time when hip hop was in its infancy. So you got a chance to experience the growth of hip hop as it began to spread to other parts of the country. But can you describe the music scene in LA as hip hop was really just beginning to bubble up? Well, it, uh, you know, the hip hop scene in LA, is particularly the history is a little bit mixed. It's very different than the New York history. A lot of the, so in New York, hip-hop was sort of a rejection of disco. Um, in LA, that wasn't quite the case. In fact, uh, a lot of the early disco is what we, a lot of the early hip-hop is what we call electro uh, music. So Egyptian Lover is one of the first people I remember actually saying lyrics over a beat from LA. But his music, even if you listen to Egyptian Lover now, his music was really electro. Um, and certainly um, the, the, uh, world-class wrecking crew, sprinting, those um, basically came out of you know, those parties where somebody would jump on the mic um, and start rhyming. The Egyptian Lover was one of the most notable ones. Uh, and then we had you know, Russ Park uh, would do parodies. Um, Jimmy, Bobby, Bobby, Jimmy and the Critters, I think was the name of their group. Uh, and they would do song, they would do rhymes over exist, you know, songs that were on the radio. They would take the break beat and they would do that. So those are re really the first LA rappers until you get to Ice-T, who, but I, even Ice-T is interesting because Ice-T was really copying Schoolie D. Um, and so, and his style is very, very similar to Schoolie D. And we, you know, you could hear Schoolie D. Toddy T uh, was another one with the Bataram. The Bataram song was a uniquely LA song uh, with an LA beat, and the Bataram was only a thing in LA. So nobody kind of, you couldn't really appreciate the record outside of LA. So that was kind of the early scene, but frankly, the early scene in hip hop was mostly us listening to stuff from New York. So it, people I knew who wanted to be rappers, they like, you know, they had everything down to the New York Yankee starter jacket, the name buckle, the Kango, the Gazelle, like they were trying to mimic New York. LA didn't get its own hip hop style until much later. What, were they calling it rap at the time? Oh, they were calling it rap, they were calling it hip hop. Uh, it, you know, it was a mix. I will tell you one thing that's interesting. This was pretty much a consensus. I mean, I was a kid, but I remember strongly uh, this because I liked hip hop so much. So hip hop and breaking came out at the same time. The, overwhelming consensus was that breaking would last and that rapping would go away. See, I always heard that hip-hop yeah. was considered a fad. Yep, it absolutely was. Why did people think it was going to be a fad? 
Um, well, because I think no, uh, for a couple reasons, I think you know the the singing as a way of doing music has been around since the Buddhas, right? So it had endured several iterations. I mean, if you think about it this way, if you wanted to talk over records, you could have talked over disco records. In fact, Rapper's Delight is people talking over a disco record, right? Right. So people like, well, if people wanted to talk over records, they could have been doing that. This is just something that people came up with at this moment, and it's going to go away. Also, uh, you know, rapping, playing the dozens, handball, like all of these tendencies you had in the black community, or all of these trends you had in the black community, were effectively what we now refer to as hip hop, but they would come and go. So I remember, like, as a kid, like, I don't know, when I was eight, nine, everybody was doing the handball. And you, handball, you made a, a beat up between your chest and your thigh with your hand, and you said rhymes over it. Right. And then, I don't know, when I'm 11, 12, and nobody's doing the handball anymore. <laughs> like it's, so people felt like hip hop was going to be like that. So almost like it was childish. No, not like it was childish, just like it was Spanish. Like it was okay. It was a uh, you know something we're doing at this moment. Frankly, people thought talked about rapping the way breaking actually turned out to be. Right, because nobody really does that. Nobody does breaking as a you know. Not like they did it before. Not like they did it before. That you know, in the early days of hip hop, you could find a breakdance circle. In the mall, on the corner, at the park, you could find a breakdance circle almost anywhere, but you you couldn't find people rapping. How did hip hop really begin to get popular in LA? Like, what really blew it up? Well, again, New York hip hop was always very popular. So when you know we had the, something called the Fresh Fest in Long Beach uh, with LL Cool J, Run DMC, I think the Fat Boys, Curtis Blow. I mean, that was. It filled up the convention center. I think we were maybe did three nights, which was a huge show for acts that weren't even really on the radio outside of K-Day a little bit. But even K-Day didn't play a inordinate amount of hip hop. So that was very, very popular. New York rappers were more popular in L.A. than anybody from L.A. Really, believe it or not, until until N.W.A. You know what's interesting? You brought up K-Day. And I was actually researching um, K-Day not too long ago. And it turns out, and I did not know this, so Dr. Dre and DJ Yella actually DJ Mixmasters. For K-Day. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's really, But again, they were DJing. That wasn't hip-hop. Mm. So they were spinning records and mixing records, which, you know, DJing is a whole different aspect of hip-hop than, than rapping is. They were doing, you know, it's just like radio stations are still copying what K-Day used to do. K-Day was doing back then, which they would have the 8 o'clock Mixed Masters or the 5 o'clock Mixed Masters or whatever it was. And, you know, Yellow was one, Dr. Dre was one. Um, uh, there was another one that was, uh, one, Aladdin was one, um, DJ Yellow was one. So all the DJs that you know in the formative years, I, I can't think of one that didn't perform on K-Day because it was the only outlet that you had. But, but you know what, K-Day did play hip-hop when KJLH didn't. Oh, KJLH used to be a part of what I think is a very bad tendency within the black community where older people reject what younger people have developed. So KJLH used to advertise that they played no rap. You know what's funny? I remember that. And I'm, yeah. a, I'm an 80s baby, 90s kid. Yeah, no, that went all the way probably until the early 90s. 
I mean, folks have to remember, before uh, 92, 3, hip-hop was not played on the radio by anybody. And in fact, I think it was in 90 that Kane went out of business. And so for that 90 to 93, you couldn't hear hip-hop on the radio. That's true. Well, you had to hear it on like 92.3. No, 92.3 didn't have, wasn't happening yet. Really? Yeah, Power 106 was called Magic 106, and they used to play Steve Winwood and Duran Duran. I mean, it, it, they didn't, they, nobody played. One, only, um, and the beat was not called the beat at first. It was called 92.3 something else. I don't remember what. But the point is, they didn't play it up either. So I'm trying to remember, because I was really young, how I got my hip hop. So if you were local in LA, and particularly South LA, how are you getting your hip hop? The Box. The, okay. the Box was a video show that you could call in and request a video. So most people heard hip hop on The Box. So how are you getting your hip hop though? Let's say you're not um, watching on TV. How are you getting your hip hop filled culturally, locally? You're not. The way, your ability to consume hip-hop the way you do now, there was nothing like that. Right. So, you know, you it was an event to hear a hip-hop song. And, and even when radio did play it, there there were three maybe songs that they played. So, you know, I remember, say, 85 or 86, there was this uh, rapper called Rap and Do. So never that whole... Never make it this far. Right. Well... <laughs> The point is, that was the only hip-hop record she heard on the radio. And it was like a novelty record. It wasn't even a, a, a real, considered a real right. song. I was quoting um, Biggie, but those didn't. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Biggie was quoting Rappin' Duke. Right. Um, uh, he would, Rappin' Duke was somebody who was mocking John Wayne. Right. Uh, but they were they were doing hip-hop, which AI would probably do a really good job of now. Um, so you couldn't consume it like that. So when you got to a place... That's why people would stay in front of the box all day because for 99 cents, you could hear, you could request your video. And because it was the only thing that we had that is like streaming now, in other words, where nobody was curating the music for you, you called up and you said what you wanted. Um, it was very underground what was played on that. So then that highlights to me the significance of, I remember on our podcast on, on Boogie, your podcast that I helped co-host, um, and they stayed off the record, we had J-Rock on. Yeah. And you guys talked about these spaces where you could hear world-class record, where you could hear Uncle Jam's Army. To me, it sounds like that really have the significance of these spaces. It does, but just just remember, they weren't playing hip-hop in those spaces. It was just they DJs. They were playing breakbeats. Breakbeats. Yeah, they okay. were breakbeats. So that's what Drake did. Drake took, like, yeah, like East Coast DJs. He took the best part of records and he would just loop them all together. And that was what you were listening to. Uh, it wasn't like you were listening to hip hop records per se. Mm. I mean, everybody had like the big Sugar Hill Gang, you know, Rapper's Delight. Some people had, you know, um, Melly Mel and the Furious Five. But like there were, I mean, you know, there were maybe 20 records max. And, you know, only seven or eight of them were things that people actually listened to. Wow, so it was mostly just dancing? Yeah, it was mostly dancing. So like, I'll give you an example of a group that was really big, an East Coast group that was really big in LA. But they weren't, I would argue, they weren't really big because they were rapping, they were big as their music. Houdini. So Friends was a huge record here. Five Minutes of Funk was a barn burner in LA. Like you, like if you took the bus somewhere, like you, seven cars were gonna drive up playing Five Minutes of Funk. 
Um, but people like that because of the break. Not, I mean, their rapping was okay, but it was not. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like Roxanne. 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 Roxanne was like that was lyrically forward. The lyrics are in your in the front of it. Like that's what you remember about that song. The things that were popular in LA were much as much or if not much more about the music. Why do you think that was? Um, I think that LA didn't have the disco problem that New York had. So so you know the sort of story about hip hop is disco music became really big, but New York had these really exclusive disco clubs, Latin Quarter, Studio 54, and you couldn't get into those clubs. And you really couldn't get in if you, you weren't wearing a suit or, you know, and, and hard shoes and, you know, a disco dress or whatever. And so people rebelled against that because they were like, wait a minute, they're playing our music. Why can't we go inside and hear it? And so that's why hip hop was track suits and streetwear as opposed to uh, so LA doesn't have that history because we didn't have that many discos to speak of anyway and LA wasn't the kind of city where if you lived in Compton or even if you lived in South Central that you were going to go to West Hollywood to a disco you just didn't that wasn't the way the, the social life kind of worked so the feeling of exclusion wasn't really there um, and in fact um, um, the, the funk era so like a really big LA record more bounce and then so more bounce is a big LA record and then the other dynamic was different gangs had different records right so parliament and I'm, I'm not going to say sets but you know parliament has some songs that were for certain sets <laughs> and then other bands had songs that were for their set and when you were somewhere you knew like you know if you're a party in this part of town this record's gonna play and it's gonna you know the party's gonna blow up when that happens so parliament funkadelic um roger troutman daz band um i I could go on but that was really the dominant force in music so our histories in comparison to new york were just so different very different that makes sense so if we move forward to and and remember so so hip-hop Different than jazz and, and blues, uh, jazz and blues all, all, all both have a kernel of this. But remember, hip hop is fundamentally about about struggle against rejection. Right. So, so to me, that's why N.W.A. is the first hip hop group to break out because they're struggling against rejection. Right. So they're saying, "You guys are calling us this. We're gonna own it, and we're gonna make it in. We're gonna make it so good that you're gonna want to be it too." Right. Um, it's gonna be our name. Right. That's right. It's gonna be our name, and we're gonna go right at, we're gonna go right at the negativity directly at it, um, and that really is the hip hop tradition. I think that's that's a really interesting point because one of the things that I always talk about, even in how I consume hip hop, is the political edge to it. Right. Even when people don't think it's political, I still think it's political. But I'm always interested in how not only has politics and political issues influenced hip hop, but the ways that hip hop influences politics. Yeah. And I would love for you to speak a lot about that because I think people think, you know, it's just speaking about all the issues that exist, but I think it's actually influenced um, political discourse. Well, I think it totally influences political discourse. Now you have a situation where, like me and dozens and dozens of others, 
you actually have hip hop generation elected officials um, that grow up steeped in the culture. But I will say this about that. I, so I'm an activist. That's my thing I do. That's my sort of life calling. But really, if I'm if I take an objective look at history, like one of the major challenges our people have faced is crack cocaine, right? Well, politics didn't end the crack cocaine epidemic. Hip hop did. Hip hop decided that we're not doing like this is not a thing anymore, right? So, and when you when that happened, the dynamic around crack dissipated very very quickly, much quicker than it did associated with any other law. Um, and so, you know, and, and you you saw you saw hip hop transition people from. Eight ball and cocaine. So malt liquor and cocaine to weed. Right. That's very true. Uh, that it, public health didn't do that. Politics didn't do that. Education didn't do that. Hip hop did that. And then transitioned the conversation into the legalization of right. weed. Right. And and pushing back on pushing back on the police state, all of it. Pushing back on 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 the the uh, mass incarceration, all of that stuff. And also advocating for safe spaces around hip hop and for the communities. I think about places like um, the Good Life Cafe, and I think about like in my generation, Project Blue. Um, there was even an episode on Alicia um, referencing Project Blue, but I think they called it something the Bombay or something like that. Um, <laughs> you rolled your eyes. What's that? Yeah, I just I didn't know they called it that. The so Bombay. That's well, very that's that's very brandy. <laughs> <laughs> But um, with the episode featuring, uh, what's his name, Fred, was it Pedro Star from, mm -hmm. um, what's the, Onyx. But um, I just think, I always think about those, they, they kind of highlight it as a space for young people to be um, safe and have hip hop and, and, and acknowledge that, hey, this is a space of expression. Um, and I think that's significant in places like South LA, where young people need to be able to express themselves, need to have a space where they can also be politicized. And also be able to have that as an economy for the local, um, for the local cities or businesses as well. Chaos Network is a business. The Life Cafe is a business. Yeah, I mean they're businesses for sure, but they're gathering spots. Their social significance is is, is great. But I'm a big believer in the village when it comes to creativity and art. It's one of the things that concerns me about this moment because if you're a good rhymer, you can sit in your bedroom, make a beat lay down the tracks, edit it, produce it, come up with images without ever leaving the bedroom and put it out. That's frightening to me because to me, the best art comes in community. And that's what was really great about the Good Life, uh, Project Blow, and all of these, even even the state land in down in Compton, that people come together and sort of vibe off each other and, you know, and create, all right, you know, Ice Cube has, you know, famous quote about Easy East first record, you know, Boys in the Hundred Easy Dance and all those records. He was like, he's like, you know, I wrote that stuff as jokes. I didn't know Easy E was gonna actually say it on a record. Like, you know what I mean? And he's like, and that those records sold as good or better than my records did. Um, but that only happens in community. If he had been by himself, he would have thrown those things away. So do you think like in this era where people are, especially after the pandemic, people have kind of become more isolated and worked in isolation, um, even, you know, record podcasts um, remotely. Do you think this sort of, this sort of era where people are doing things in isolation can hurt 
the development? I think it can. Look, I, I think there's a devolution of um, the black art space across the board um, that I think will reverse itself. I don't know when it will reverse itself or how, but I think it will do it. So there's, there's this shrinking of it and this refinement of it that puts it down to the very, very uh, fewest amount of people possible. So you'll never, you don't get anything like Earth, Wind and Fire now or you know a band uh that's you know got 12 pieces or 10 pieces or five pieces uh even in the black church you know you have black churches now and they were there used to be a choir of 50 people or 40 people it's now a praise team right that's five so really good five people who can really really sing it's like this is no fun i mean like you know what does she doing the praise team but you know the great thing about the choir was that it included so many people, and so many people felt like they were a part of producing the art. And I think, um, I think we will turn away from that, the shrinking, and and begin to grow and, and coalesce uh, over time. You know, I've heard you speak publicly about um, how Mexico also created value and the and kept economics here, and part of that is because he brought in community. Um, what are some ways as a community that we can continue that legacy and how do we develop spaces for us to create and for our community to benefit from those creations? So if we're working in isolation, it feels like that kind of hurts that ability. Right. It does hurt the ability because, one, you know, the most dangerous and damaging tendency of capitalism is rugged individualism. Mm. Right. So it's it's. You know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but it's, it's it's probably the main problem with the United States. It's that the American dream is an individual project. It's not a group project, right? So, if, to achieve the American dream, what does that mean? That means you get your house and everything that you want. It doesn't mean it doesn't. Your neighbor could be in the gutter. It doesn't matter. You still have achieved the American dream. In other parts of the world, their collective activity is about the whole, right? So. You know, the, the the French project is about France and the Japanese project is about Japan and Japanese people. Um, and I think the the individualism that is being is really encouraged and rewarded here seeps into our community and it does create a dangerous situation because you're only thinking about yourself and you're thinking about the short term. So you're thinking about what happens to you tomorrow, not what happens to you 20 years from now. Uh, I think in groups, we can think about the value that we create, which which people, when you're an individual, you're encouraged not to think about that. So how much economic activity am I generating? For who? Who's the beneficiary of it, right? And when you're in a group, you are more likely to think about those things. Do you feel like it's significant to also tap into the legacy of what we've done as a community to evolve? I, I do. I think it's important to, to tap into the legacy of what we uh, have done in order to do better, in order to protect yourselves against the threats that you know are there. So again, every time we do this thing, we cycle up, right? We cycle up, we cycle up. And hopefully, I mean, you know, for all the credit we give Nipsey Hussle, the EZE had a record label too. His record label was nothing like Nipsey Hussle's enterprise. Nipsey Hussle's enterprise was a significant improvement over what was done, at, you know, with Ruthless Records, or even with uh, Ice Cube's outfit. Um, and I think we'll get better in the future, but you gotta know the history in order to avoid those pitfalls. So, 
Let's talk about some of the legacies that we've had here in LA. What are some of the hip hop legacies that you feel have really shaped the hip hop scene? Well, you know, the hip hop scene in LA, I mean, it's, just, it's Dre. Like, it's just Dre is the big giant gorilla, like big elephant, whatever metaphor you want to use. You, you can't get around Dre because uh, there are very few people who from LA who even have had an old record without Dre touching it. Very few, I mean, yeah, I can't really name one in the last 25 years, a hip hop artist. Um, I'm hearing that there might be one. Um, some people say the game. No. Right, well the game had a gold record, but 50 Cent was on that record. 50 Cent is a Dr. Dre artist. I was just about to say, yeah, you, so can't you can't even count game. You can't count the game. Yeah. Dre, Eminem, yeah. who's significantly one of the highest selling rappers ever, and he's coming I mean, to Dre. Tyler is the first legit hip hop artist that's been, you know, that has gold records that did never had a record touched by Dre. And I would say Tyler also doesn't get enough credit as far as being a great hip hop entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, the yeah, so you know, that's kind. That's kind of the the mo. So I just got a note that just said YG and Draco, but Drake Draco's never had a. He's never had a big record. Um, you can't even compare that to Drake. Yeah, yeah. I mean. He's never really had a huge record, but but certainly YG has had a record. But it's really hard to argue YG because what is YG? A rapper from Compton, like just, you know, who wouldn't be where he is without no. Dre. He's he's mimicking the blueprint written by Dre 35, 40 years ago. So uh, you know, I, I mean, so so it is. I knew there were some, but most um most people i guess you could argue i don't think Dre did anything on nipson's uh victory by ballot either which that's certainly would go um but the the point is Dre's the big um you know the big kahuma the, there's this big discussion about doja cat um that i won't go into because a lot of people don't consider that hip-hop well i think the problem with doja cat is that she's more of the, I would say she's not part of the hip hop culture as a lot of people sure, see her. Sure. She's so much more of the pop culture. And hip hop is very, as much as it's, even though it's the biggest genre in the world, it's still, to me, as far as the cultural aspect, it's still kind of niche. Yeah, authenticity, authenticity matters. Exactly. And, and that's yeah. always been significant in our yeah. culture. Right. And, and relationships matter and, you know, all that matters. So, you know, it's like, it's funny. I look at people, Kendrick Lamar's fan base is in their 30s now. I, I remember when those people were 13, 14 years old and, and Kendrick Lamar had mixed days. That's so true. You know, so that's authenticity. So Kendrick's huge. He, he's nominated for a Grammy every time he puts out a record. His record goes multi-platinum every time. He can fill up, you know, LA is one of the only cities that has, you know, more than a couple artists that can fill up stadiums. Kendrick's in that category, but he's authentic and it's not hard to trace his roots. Other people don't have that clear line. So do you think, speaking of culture, do you think that the way that we consume music has completely changed the way that we even see the culture? Because it's not like back when, even when I was growing up, that we would go all to the music store together. 
we would go to the, we, like when I was two, we would meet up. We catch the bus to Amiga Music. And um, that was, and I'm t they weren't even everywhere. There was one here, one in the bank, one other place. And we'd all go to uh, Amiga Music, go through the CD racks and uh, find new stuff, find underground albums, talk about them, take them home. It was an area you could go listen to it. Or we would go to Virgin and make a star. We could go listen to the albums. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't, we don't have the profession of curating music or being a radio DJ is pretty much gone. You're, you're, you know, I think it's something like 100,000 songs that upload Spotify a day. And, you know, they have things, you know, you can pay to be promoted on Spotify, which is tricky, or they just do this algorithm and try to guess what you like, uh, which is a very different experience. I can remember the day that Midnight Marauders came out. It's one of my favorite albums. Midnight Marauders came out the same day as Lithium by Nirvana. And back then, this is pre-Amoeba, there was a record store in every neighborhood. This Warehouse Records, Sam Goody, a couple other chains, and I, was names I can't And there were even mom and pop records. And there were mom and, and there were independent, what are called independent record stores, mom and pop record stores. So you did line up, so people, so you did could buy music together. So the day Midnight Marauders came out, there was a line at almost every record store, at least around here. And in fact, you'd end up driving around because your record store might have more people in the line than the record store had copies. So you knew you had to go somewhere else. So so that happens. The, the way we consume now, uh, it's very, very different. I don't know what will happen with it, but I do know this. It, this new technology killed the gatekeepers. Yes. So you don't have to get permission from somebody or sign off on some, from somebody. So if I, I'll give you an example. Tyler's the perfect example. In the old, old world, Tyler probably wouldn't have made it. And even if he did, he wouldn't be as big as he is. But because Tyler can go direct to consumer, as he's been doing now for 15 years at least, he's one of the biggest selling hip-hop artists. He's got one of the biggest brands in terms of uh, uh, merch, clothing. Fa I mean, high fashion, not just fashion. Um, he's got video content, so he's got you know he's got a comic book, uh, cartoons, and television stuff. And you know, I my understanding is he's got some movies in the can, so he can do all that. He would not have been. I don't think if you knew the music business before, he would not have been allowed to do this. This whole thing about you know the fluidity of his sexuality that just wouldn't have been. You know, back then, even you were Sylvester, and Sylvester, for people who don't know, was, you know, a non-gender conforming disco singer from San Francisco. Either you were Sylvester, or you were very straight, or you were in the closet. Those are the only three options. Right. But there was no... Other conversation. Nothing. Right. And so, but again... If you don't need permission from some executive somewhere or some marketing person somewhere, you can, you can do what you want. And to the point around Tyler, it's interesting because I was working in hip hop media at the time, and I remember when blogs would not cover him at all. Mm -hmm. People would refer to it as the blog era, and they weren't covering him. So that's when he created his own website and just started, like you said, direct to consumer. But it also makes me think of back before there was even a blog era, before there was hip hop media online. A lot of the underground artists would try to sell, they would have to sell their CDs like at the Sloss and Swap Meet. I remember if you were an underground artist, you'd be at the Sloss and Swap Meet or the Rodium. And these were significant places where you would have to sell your art. 
Yeah, but you can get into Rat Pages, XXL Magazine, or The Source. Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, not obviously everybody couldn't get into this, but that was how you, you know, The Source had a section called Unsigned Hype, which was right. only for people who didn't have record deals. And and that, but that was if they were, and this was if you had really, but some of the magazines, some magazines did. Vibe had some, XXL had some, these people that would go to some of the big cities and they would go to places like the Swatson Swat mm-hmm. and find and discover these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's how Mitch, Mitchie Slick talked about this. He would have to literally call up the Swap Meet and say, hey, how many CDs do you need? Um, and he would sell his records that way. Um, and you would literally have to just do it yourself. Um, and that's how I think he got found, how uh, I mean, was found. And certain artists, and this was San Diego, but he got found by somebody, mm-hmm. by his music in some LA Swap Meet somewhere. Um, so absolutely, that's true. But some artists literally have to just go kind of how Nipsey was. I remember when Nipsey was just on the corner selling his CDs. Yeah, what now is the mar- was was became the marathon store. Um, it was no, I think I, back then. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. But you know, again, you two is much different. So if I meet, if I hear you at a party, I can go hear you on YouTube, and a couple things happen. One, I have access to your entire catalog immediately. I'm not just listening to mailbox money that I bought from you and swap me. I'm listening to your whole catalog. <laughs> and I'm listening to people associated with you immediately. Right. It's very different. That's very true. What are some places that you feel are significant to the hip hop scene in South LA specifically? That's an interesting uh, question. And, you know, LA hasn't done a great job with it. Um, you know, certainly World on Wheels, I would put in that category. World on Wheels is not open anymore. Skateland down in Compton. Um, um, you know, certainly is a big location. Obviously, Project Blow and A Good Life. I don't think the building that A Good Life is in it. If it's still there, it's coming down soon. Um, you know, was were, uh, you know, were, were very, very big places. K-Days used to be on the corner of Homeland and Crenshaw. Uh, that was a senior location, not there anymore either. I think K is somewhere in Hollywood, probably. Um, those are ones that I think of offhand. Obviously, the Long Beach uh, Performing Arts Center, where the Fresh Fest was, huge. The Sports Arena, where Uncle Jam's Army was, also not there anymore. Massive. Um, you know, you could go on, but a lot of those places we've lost. Sloss and Swap Meet, yeah, the Rhodium, where you could buy uh, tapes, and then the corner of Slauson and Crenshaw. So what's interesting is that, you know, in later history, the Marathon store is there, and that sort of becomes Nipsey's corner, but that really is the intersection where the bootleg t-shirt and the bootleg tape was invented. I mean, you could get anything. I mean, and this it's funny because AI does this for free now, but you could get a Bart Simpson t-shirt uh, where he's dressed like MC Cameron and says, you can't touch this. Like, and you couldn't buy that in a regular store anywhere because it was all kinds of copyright infringement of both the Simpsons right. and of Atlantic Records the, and of MC Hammer. Like, it was all of it. It was all around, all over the place. But, you you know, you could uh, you could get it along with your uh, other bootleg stuff. So that, those, are, um, uh, those are some of the places. You know, we didn't get into hip hop fashion. I'm glad you brought up Mark Simpson. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite hip hop fashions from LA? Because I know sometimes I watch old TV shows where TV shows, um, sorry, TV shows are based on LA from the past. And I've even heard you talk about it. Uh, sometimes they get it wrong. Yeah, sometimes they get the clothes wrong. So Snowfall, I was really mad because 
They got, hat. they got the Todd one. Like people that wear Kangos in LA, they got the Todd one sweatshirts, sweatsuits wrong. Um, you know, they had them wearing Philo sweatsuits and Philo when Philo was not a thing in LA. It was top one. Um, you know, Edice, Elise, like all of these things, uh, because we didn't have publications back then, uh, you rely on memory to know sort of what the what people were wearing. And then the, this idea of having merchandising and all that kind of stuff just didn't exist. So what were people wearing other than, like you said, Tyler, but what are some other like big styles? Were people wearing like... Troop was a big brand. British Knights was a big brand. Uh, it was kind of like our version of the Dapper Dan sort of things that uh, they had. Uh, in the early days of hip hop, obviously, you know, an LA staple that's still a staple to this day, Ben Davis or Dickies, Chucks, Big T. Like, I don't know a time when that was not and a chain. Like, that, I don't know a time when that was not something you would wear. Yeah. Uh, in the last 40 some odd years. We're uh, still known for the Dickies. Yeah, like, you could have worn that in 78, you could have worn it in 88, you could have worn it in 98, you could wear it in 2008, you could wear it in 2018, and you will be able to wear it in 2018. And it, will, it still will be a thing. And again, that comes out of a particular LA uh, history, because LA was the manufacturing capital of the United States. And the black community, largely, especially the men, had jobs in manufacturing, where you wore some type of khaki outfit. And you wore a tee because, you know, those shirts that they show you in Detroit, the button up with your name here and the long sleeves, was too hot to wear that. So people wore t-shirts when they worked. Um, you know, the, the other big one is, um, the other big hip hop influence out of LA is jail attire, right? So sagging, sagging that we've done in LA and we exported around the world. Sagging was because in prison, you, could, you weren't allowed to have belts. So your prison blues will hang off of you. So people will get out of prison and continue to wear their pants that way. Uh, and um, that is, and again, that became very much a part of hip hop as you know the population that was involved in mass incarceration was also a market for hip hop. <coughs> Rock that. So, speaking of incarceration, that's one of the other topics I feel like comes up in hip hop. It's addressing issues around police brutality, yes, but also incarceration. And it made me, we talked about Dickies, also made me think of Corrupt, Behind the Wall is one of his songs. And it made me think about some of the many topics that we face in our communities um, when it comes to, I guess not even just incarceration, almost, almost everything. What are some of the significant conversations you feel come up in hip hop that um, outside of just police brutality, because I feel like that's the one everybody talks about. What are some other significant issues that we face here in our community, South LA and beyond, um, that you should probably even highlight come up in hip hop more often? Well, you know, I think the, the community violence comes up a lot in hip hop and discussions about it, about what it means, you know. Um, and how to overcome it and the cost of it, I think is uh, a lot, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, Kendrick Lamar, Ice Cube's got Dead Homies, you know, there's a range of uh, topics that that covers, uh, that covers community violence. And then the other uh, thing is just cultural consciousness, right? So uh, really beginning in the early 80s, early 90s with 
you know, it's kind of the groups that come out of the Good Life and Project Glow. You know, so there's self scientific who's now a coffee shop owner. There was Freestyle Fellowship, uh, which is Freestyle Fellowship is one of the biggest LA groups to never go mainstream ever. Like you talk to any rapper in LA, they'll they would be like, Oh yeah, Freestyle Fellowship is is one of the ones. But you know, they largely talk about culture and, and our creation of culture. Uh, how sacred that is and how it should be propagated. Um, and I think that was pretty widespread uh, during that time, during those years, early 90s. Yeah, you know who I think, and he's from your district, um, Schoolboy Q. I think he's not fair talking about kinship care. He talks about being raised by his grandmother a lot. He does talk about being raised by his, his grandmother, just so uh, Councilwoman Price doesn't get mad at me. Uh, Schoolboy Q's from the night. Oh, that was from the 81st. No, it's from it's from 55. No, 81st and Hoover. I thought up from Hoover, 81st. And 81st and Hoover's not in the district. Oh, it's not? Well, I take that back. Um, My so bad, anyway, he's from the east side. Or whatever. We claim all of it. We claim all of it. So, so, yeah, so the, the school IQ, I think, is a particular one that speaks with clarity about their experience. Also, you know, the other big one, Kendrick Lamar has a big record, but lots of people do, is just this whole business of traffic. Right, that's another uh, one. You know, tra- trafficking and, and... The yo-yo talks about that, too. Right. Uh, it, trafficking and generally sex work in general, whether coerced or not, uh, that's a big topic that I think you, you hear the struggle our community has with that in the discussion of hip-hop. Right, and just to give a shout-out to yo-yo, I think she has the Independent Black Women's Coalition. She talked about, um, she talks about sex um, trafficking among young girls in South LA. That's one of her big... On the top, she's always talked about that. Yeah, and Kendrick Lamar has a song about Long Beach Boulevard, right? Tupac, Scott. I mean, it's it's um, there's a lot there, there is, and I feel like sometimes we forget, and so I think sometimes we'll highlight so much. Well, that's about this about partying, and hip hop is about this, and hip hop, there's a lot of partying. I think that's joy is a wonderful thing to celebrate, and I don't think we should diminish that. I think joy and partying can be political in a way. But I also think we should highlight that there's so many topics that we should be also acknowledging our hip hop. Yeah, I, I mean, I think acknowledging, I mean, one of the things that's nice now is that we actually have scholars who take this work and look at it in an academic way, in a scholarly way, and give back to us a reflection of what we saw, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, you talked about yo-yo, but I think this is true in, in all of hip hop. Um, you know, the struggle between the genders, right, is always there. But, you know, and Yo-Yo and Ice Cube have a record that, well, it's funny, Yo-Yo and Ice Cube have a record that was to me the best articulation until this song on the last um, Kendrick record. I forget what it's called. Um, Oh, gosh. We Cry Together? Is that what it's called? It's called We Cry Together. Like, that's a real, hardcore, ugly, raw, bloody examination of the best and the worst of gender relations. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens now that didn't happen before is somebody can take that and write about it. Right. And, you know, attach data to it and, and all the rest. Um, but that, yeah, that we cry together and, um, and um, it's not in camp. It's a man's world uh, by Ice Cube and Joe Um, those, 
you know, again, every group of people has trouble between genders, just as we have struggles between generations, young and old, parents and children. Um, and, you know, struggles between artists and intellectuals. You know, there's always struggles that break down in groups. Um, the articulation of it, uh, to me, is as good an articulation as there is. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up gender. Let's talk about some of the women in L.A. who are significant to hip-hop. J.J. Fad. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, J.J. Fad is the, I mean, little secret that no one talks about. J.J. Fad was outselling N.W.A. and Ice Cube. I didn't know that. Yeah, until they walked until they walked away. I mean, the the supersonic, because see, see the thing is, supersonic crossed over. The N.W.A. records didn't cross over. So Kiss FM and whatever the radio station, they were playing supersonic, uh, and they weren't playing Boys in the Hood as an example. So now everybody thinks of you know, those records is bigger. Supersonic was the record. It was the biggest hip-hop record out of L.A. for the longest time. Um, and so they kind of, to me, set the standard for, you know, what was possible. Wow. I wouldn't have even thought to say to anybody. Oh, yeah. No, they, 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 they were the... I was going to go Yo-Yo or Super Underground like Medusa. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, I mean, yes, yeah, super, I mean, J.J. Fad sold more records than all those people combined. Well, I don't always go by record sales. Well, I do, because it, it, because in this situation, back then, a record sale is much different than data is now. A record sale, you had to physically leave your house with money, go to a place and buy the record. And when, you, and when they scanned the record... It went into a database. So we knew exactly how many records sold, where they sold, what kinds of people were buying them. So it was a big deal. And and so for so what Supersonic did is they were even with NWA and Ice T and all the men in the in the community, even young MC and Tom Love, who were considered crossovers, they were as big as them, and they were selling outside the community. See, I think so this is where I think there's a generational thing. Because I value record sales less because I in my I feel like in my era is when you start to see hip hop become so much more popular where record labels started to pay more attention, media started to pay more attention, and it became more of a how can we market this? Well and it, it becomes more of how we market this, but let me just I want to push back on that a little bit because people say record sales are a function of the record company. Well, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that. Well, I am, but let me right. clarify. I guess what I'm saying is when there are some people who have so much more money behind them and so much more support right. versus other yeah, artists. What, what, yeah, what you're saying is it's a, fresh, it, it's a function of capital investment by the record company. Yeah, versus and, some other people. And, and what I'm, so I'm going to agree with part of what you're saying and I'm going to disagree with another part. The part that you're right about is there is a big chunk of the market that doesn't have any way of knowing about this record unless the record company tells them. That's marketing. Right, right. right. But if you look at hip-hop historically, it's actually not a surprise that hip-hop and country are the most popular genres because this is what they had even in the 70s that no other kind of music had. Of the people that knew about their records or their music, 
a huge amount of them consumed it. So maybe only 200 people know about NWA, or 180 are buying the record. So you're looking right. at us as a percentage of right. that market. Right, and then the other hundreds of thousands of people don't even know anything about the record, so they can't, they're not even in the game, right? And so what the record company can figure out is, if I expand the game, I might not keep that 80% ratio, but I can keep a 70% ratio. Meanwhile, historically, because, of, because they were racist and sexist, record companies would spend a lot of money. So there was no one who didn't know about Duran Duran. But not everybody bought Duran Duran's record. There wasn't anybody who didn't know about Madonna. You could not avoid knowledge about Madonna. I never bought a Madonna record. Ever. Okay. So the point, and, I, and not anybody, no one I knew bought a Madonna record. Right? So the point is, right? so the point is. I have my opinions about Madonna, but I'm going to say And I actually, I actually <laughs> think Madonna is pretty good because Madonna is basically Nile Rodgers, who I like a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, she's that. basically singing Nile Rodgers records. But the, the point is, what the record companies never realized or never or refused to realize or whatever it was, oh, if we advertise this Madonna record to a million people, 25% of them will buy it, right? They never looked across the aisle to say like, oh, only 500 people know about this record, but 450 are buying it. So if I expand that number of people who know about it, I'll get a bigger rate. I'll get a bigger pushback. I'll get a bigger return than I'm getting on Madonna. And it's the same is true with country. People don't know about country, right? So before, particularly before consumers, you can go direct to consumer. Most country artists, people didn't know about. So you you didn't know to have an opinion about them or not. I mean, when I was coming up, I knew about Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. And the songs that they had, I liked. I didn't know any other country artists because the record companies didn't spend any money marketing them. So, so, I, so I guess what I'm saying is, I don't. I always reject the notion that hip hop is now popular because of something the record companies did. I, I, I what I would say is hip hop was wasn't the most popular form for so long because the record companies held it back. I think. Well, I do think that's also true. I do think you have to also acknowledge that they also changed a lot of artists' music to fit the more mainstream and pop sound. Oh, so, there's, a, there's a lot of that. I mean, I think it's so, frankly, I think there's less of that now than there was in the beginning. Well, probably less of that now, but now I think there's such a different measurement and metric that you have to use for even sales. Like they you do everything so differently now. That's yeah, there's no streaming farms yeah. now. Like that. I don't yeah. think we can use that same measurement. No, no. The only way you can measure an artist now is who shows up to see them play. And that's and even those have gone down. Like even the sales for concerts have gone down unless you're Beyonce. Right. Well, unless you're Beyonce or you're Taylor Swift. Right. Um, but but the the point is, now that you don't have the record sale as a measure, you, the truth is you have to come up with something else. I don't think streaming is a terrible thing, especially because you have so many platforms that you can hear. So, you know, one of the ones that I think is, you know, Afrobeats is now moving into a space that, you, you know, where nobody listens to African music unless you're a real music kid five years ago. Now, you can't go to any city in the country and their most popular radio station is playing at least two Afrobeat songs, right? So that's an example. But what I would, what I would say about that is, and, and Burner Boy, for example, can fill up stadiums pretty consistently. 
around the world. What I would say is the record companies are always the last to know what's popping. That's true. But that's because a lot of them sitting there. They don't I don't think they have a big in, I don't think they have a big input on what's popping. I really don't. You know, like 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 take this woman. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I'm a fan. <laughs> I don't I'm ashamed that I'm a fan. But like Coy Lorette. Okay, don't be ashamed at this point because I think she used to be not good and now she has some good songs. She's fine. <laughs> she's fine. She, she brings it. <laughs> she she started she just brings it, but she grew on me, I'm not gonna lie. Like she's just hot. Yeah. Like you, the, she's got some songs. The record company can say what they want to say. YouTube can say what they want to say. She's hot. And you know the way you know you play her record in a club. Right. That's a good point. You play that record in a club and you see what happens. That's and, a good point. And, and, or you play or, or better, 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 better. You play her record at a at a barbecue and watch people in their sixties know the words. Right. That's just heat. Like there's that's no marketing. That's just heat. Well, that definitely speaks to how changes in technology um, definitely changed even the music industry, but it all, and also how it affected the scene in comparison to past decades. Because in the past, you definitely couldn't see an artist just grow their audience in that same way. It's, you know, she really got big off the TikTok and Instagram videos, people making those those these sounds, even clips from her songs go viral. Because I remember when she first, first came out, she was getting clowned left and right. She had a weird voice and was doing weird stuff. Look weird. Yeah. Then it was all, nobody understood it. And then something happened. She dropped one song and it went crazy on all the videos. And then now she drops consistent heat. Well, and and even when she looked weird and was kind of funny, she had good lyrics then. Right. Like you, like. Well, she does I, the sound. I, it sounded I, great. Yeah, and she had good sound. But I remember going like, "Oh, she can write." Like, she's she's no like. There's all kind of goofiness happening here, but at the bottom of it, she's a good, she's a good writer. I'll give you a historical example, not in the head file, of somebody who, because of the record company, to make the first point that you make about the record company, you say because you're saying the record company lift up some stuff that wouldn't be lifted up without it. That could be true. But also, they hold a lot of things down that wouldn't be held down if they just went out of the way. Let's take Patrice Russian. Mm-hmm. Master musician. Master musician. Mm-hmm. People are still singing her records now. People are still sampling her records now. You know, out of Lock High School, like, you know, Reggie Ann, all that. In a, in a situation where she could have gone directly to the consumer, Patrice Russian would be massive. Massive. But she's an example of, well, you're a black woman, you're from South Central LA, we're gonna print 50,000 copies of your record and we hope that they sell. Right. I mean, I agree with that point too. I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. I mean, I definitely know that, when we, and we've seen this multiple times, artists who talk about even being blackballed or even being held down by labels. And if they could just, at this time, in fact, um, Aylor Reed went through something similar. Right? Yeah, right, we haven't heard from her. Right, she went through something similar where she didn't release one thing, they were actually gonna give to Jayla, right? She had released it herself via mixtape, and then it blew up. That's how she ended up being able to have that song for herself. So yeah, that's absolutely true. I and again, she gets, and she's gotten punished since. She actually has. And so I 100% agree with that. Um, but I guess what I was trying to say is that there's also these moments where, and, and to be fair, and to also tune your point, 
We've also seen our labels do that, blow people up, and then we don't see them again because right. they fell off. Like they, they couldn't break right. the system. And record labels make money off of new people. They don't right. make money. I mean, and that you, you're not going to make now. like you're, you're not going to make any money. It's like you know, if you don't like, you don't make money off LeBron James or Andrew Davis or you the Lakers. You make money off the other people. Right. I mean, right. You're not going to make them. You know. Signing Stevie wanted to do a record, you're not gonna make a lot of money off that. Stevie's gonna make a lot of money off it, but you're not gonna make a lot of money because Stevie's already huge. And so the industry is addicted to new acts. And I think that's you think well, I think that's the case more so now. Do you think that's the case more so now? It, that's always been the case. That's always been the case. I mean, you historically it's hard to see because you don't see how many one hit mm. wonders there were. And, you know, it's like it, I was just uh flipping through IG and this feed um, put out all the black boy bands that came out around the time of NWA, a new NWA, a new edition. Like a couple dozen. And what was interesting is I flipped through them, more than half of them actually remembered their song once it was being played for me. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that record. I forgot about those guys. Oh, I remember that record. I forgot about those guys. So like, but the record industry you know, again, rather than they make more money off one of these guys hitting, then they're gonna make off a new edition second album. And certainly not once new edition became Bobby Brown and mm-hmm. you know BBE and all the rest of it and Johnny Gill. Then, you know, that the 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 weight is all in the in the direction of the artist. Got it. So you actually mentioned writing a little bit earlier with the reference to Phil Ray. I'm actually wanting to know your opinion. This this wasn't planned. I actually just curious about this. How do you feel about rappers not writing? I don't I think it's your brother. Is it significant now? Hip hop is a performance art. So you so, never yeah. you don't care about whether or not rappers are have those no, writers? No, look, and I'm a real lyricist person. Writers. Like I love lyricists, but the truth is lyricists a lot of times don't make the best music. Mm, right, that's a good so, point. Right. So two of my favorite lyricists, Raskaz, my favorite One of my favorites too. Of all time. Shout out to Carson. And right. so Carson, as he said. Carson is, yeah, like amazing, but Chino Excel, same like yeah. situation. You know, meanwhile, the chronic, which you know everybody knows Dre is not a record. Jay Z wrote thirty percent of the records on the chronic. Right. Ice Cube wrote for NWA. Right, and Ice Cube wrote for NWA. You know, Ice Cube never gangbang a day in his life. He's the most prolific gang gangster rap writer. I have friends who and up until recently thought Ice Cube was from Compton because he says Charlie Compton. But he's from the west side of South Central. Right. Yeah. That part. Exactly. So is Dre for Dre's actually not from Compton either. Really? But it's, no, Dre lived in the same neighborhood last year. Um uh they knew each other and then but but again, remember, the skate skating rink in Compton was where you could do hip hop, so that's where people went. That's what that's how they made that connection. Easy is the one that was from Compton. Um so you know that that um the 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 writing, because it's a form performance art, it's less and less important to me. Really? Yeah. I think you're right in regards to a lot of your the best writers aren't always the best performers. I think that's why so many people that we might call underground mixtape rappers don't always get the best albums. Yeah. Because their work might be crazy and you enjoy that. Even a lot of battle rappers, like they make great they have great wordplay, you love the metaphors, you love the similes, you love all that great stuff. Um, and then you listen to their album. Like, this is some of the worst beats you've ever heard. They sound the same on all of them. 
and you spend more time trying to do wordplay rather than tell a story. And you know, it's, you get a, um, to me, people who come up with great music and they're great writers, it's unicorn. So, you know, I would say Ice Cube had a, had a very short unicorn period where he had great production and he was one of the best lyricists in the country. Buster Rhymes had that. Little Wayne's actually had it for a while where he, he was writing better stuff for other people than most other rappers who write for themselves, right? Right. So, and, and he always had great production, but that, it's very rare in hip hop. That's why I don't, you know, it's like, if you give me a good, and I don't want to pick on this person, but you give me the best producer and the best writer and you put a guy up there to do the performance, I'm good. So it doesn't even matter. No, and I, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to diss people, but there's some people I know they need, I, I know they neither did the music nor wrote the lyrics, but they're performing it. Right. Does your respect level change? Look, I mean, if an artist is an artist, you're going to know. I mean, one thing that's different about hip-hop than other genres, I think, I could be wrong on this, but you can tell very immediately the intellectual level of the person. Explain that. In other words, I know... If I listen to Tyler versus, let's just say, the game, right? I know how much they read in the first 90 seconds. So like a Nas. You can tell. He reads right. a lot. Like if I listen to Nas and I listen to 50 Cents. Right. 50 Cent. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's such a... I hate to say this. Those are 40 <laughs> A lot of my elders say 50 Cents. That's all I'm going to say. So Fitty, I would call it, <laughs> and Nas. That sounds useful. Two minutes of hearing them, you go like, oh, this guy's consuming this, this guy's consuming other stuff. Right. And so, you know, it's um you know, it's like like Ice Ice T was one of the first rappers uh to sort of have records on the radio from LA uh in the early days. And you knew and I, I had read these books because they were always around the house as a kid, I knew that you read a lot of Iceberg Slim. Because hip hop is different than other genres. You know, I don't know what Jasmine Sullivan reads. Mm. I just don't. Like I, she could be very heady or not at all. I wouldn't know because that genre doesn't lend itself to you knowing that hip hop does. Right. Because you're also listening to someone like Jasmine Sullivan for the vocal performance more exactly. than anything else. Exactly. And the feelings that you evoke from hearing right. her perform that vocally right. versus hip hop where it's more about the content. There are other rappers where you know like, oh I know this rapper watched a lot of television. Got it. You know like you know instantly. And so that's where uh so your your question was about does it give me a greater or lesser uh respectful person it gives me perspective. It gives me a window into, you know, where they're coming from. I mean, it, it's it's one of the reasons why Tyler, the creator, is so uh, strong to me because he can paint very clear pictures. I mean, very clear pictures of where he's been, what he's done, and how he was feeling. Shout out to Ladera Heights. Yeah, there you go. He's not from Ladera. He's 81st in New Hampshire. See, you can tell me this stuff, but that's not what they be saying. No, this comes directly from Tyler He's, himself. I when I was when I was looking up long when he first came out, he would say Ladera. He look so he's lived a bunch of places in L.A. Uh, I I will tell you this: I went to the Call of Duty Lost 
tour, mm -hmm. and he put up a screen of the city. So when he was a kid, he lived here on 81st in New Hampshire. Okay. And then he got pushed, his family got pushed out of there, and they moved to Hawthorne. Then he moved not to Ladera Heights, but to the apartments on La Siena, right across the street from the Target. Okay. Right? Then when he got in the business, he was able to afford to stay with somebody in Ladera, up the hill. Oh, okay. So then he started shouting out Ladera. And that's when they were breaking. What's funny is... Okay, so that's why. Because that's yeah. when I first heard of him after right. he was in Ladera. And, okay. and what's, what's funny is when Wolfgang broke, you know, when Odd Future broke, it was supposedly they were all from the jungles. Turns out none of them are from the jungles. <laughs> Actually. Are there rappers from the jungles? Who's from the jungles? No, they used to talk about the jungles. No, but are there rappers from the jungles? I'm sure there are. I can't think. Um, I'm sure there are. I can't think who they are. Okay. I don't know why I think it's significant to know the rappers and the neighborhoods that are from. I just wanted to shout them out. But um, I'm going to get them all wrong. The they, Jays, that's the young people. <laughs> right. You know, Rob, you know where all the rappers are from. I think that's so super like significant that it's, you know. You know, I'm getting. I'm losing track. <laughs> Well, we're going to wrap up. I have a surprise for you. Um, we have a lightning round like we do on our podcast. Yeah, that's why it's a surprise, not on your sheet. <laughs> so, my first question for you is music producer. Well, who is a music producer you that you feel doesn't get enough credit for shaping the West Coast sound? Um, Battlecat. Is one. Sir Jinx is another. Oh, that's a good one. I was thinking Daz. I think Daz Dillard does it enough credit. Yeah. And DJ Quick. Yeah, DJ Quick. But to me, I feel like DJ Quick gets a lot of credit for this. More than Battlecat? He gets way more credit than Battlecat. I mean, he did the All Eyes on Me album. I still don't think he gets enough credit. But, okay, fair enough. All right. Your favorite hip hop entrepreneur business person from LA? You know, obviously, Nip, you know, Nip is... That's a given. Yeah, he's royalty. He's on the Mount Rushmore. Uh, you know, like, but I you know, I really like what Tyler's doing uh, a lot. Um, you know, I like what Issa Rae's doing a lot. Okay. So I think, you know, those are some examples. Great. And I'm glad you said Issa Rae because I was hoping you would go beyond just artists. And yeah. That's exactly why I phrase it that way. Yeah, but, but Issa Rae is probably the most prolific vendor of hip-hop culture. In other words, she sells the biggest ticket items. That's in that's, culture. that's a good point. I would definitely say Issa Rae. I'm other person was Ice Cube. So I would like what he's doing with the Big Thirty. Um, and your favorite place to experience hip hop culture in LA? Um, that's a good question. Uh, there are a lot of places I like to experience. You know, Camp Flatnaw. You know, I've seen some great moment, hip hop moments there. Uh, I've seen some great hip hop moments at the Echo or Echo Flex, I think it's called now. That's a good one. Um, you know, I've seen great uh, hip hop moments at House of Blues, even though it's not here anymore. Um, there are other places, but those are the ones that come to mind anyway. I was thinking a place that uh, I've been with you, Boombox. Yeah, Boombox is in the Echo Flex, right? Is that right? No, no they're in, uh, Grand Star. Grand Star, Grand Star, Chinatown. Yeah, yeah. And they just recently uh, had an event in MacArthur Park with J Rock. They did, and, and I was Lisa. at Boombox Saturday, and yours, yours performed. Oh, really? I missed that. Verse, sorry, that's it. Shout out to Verse too, also from LA. Um, and last question: Who is next in the LA hip hop scene to blow up? 
Rimble. Rimble. All right. I was going to say Nella Allen. She has a billboard on Swanson, so shout out to her. Shout out, but you know, billboards. <laughs> not where it's at. <laughs> not where it's at. Yeah, no, I say Rumble because he has the most distinctive sound. I'm in LA. Um, and I think the minute he gets heard by people, it's, and he gets the right concept and right packaging, I, I, it's very pretty nice. Any LA artists you want to shout out before we sign off? I mean, everybody, RJ, you know, Roddy Rich. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a pan LA fan. So I want to see everybody from LA do really, really well. Um, you know, I think um, the um, Don Kennedy doesn't get nearly enough credit. I mean, to me, he's extremely underrated. Almost like, almost like he's done that record deal. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the Odd Future set, I think, is... Oh, Earl Sweatshirt, shout out to him. Yeah, like, Earl Sweatshirt's joint, new joint, is, like, crazy. Um, but I think, uh, what I, one of the things I like is that we have a lot of LA artists that aren't making it huge, not, no disrespect, it's not like I'm trying to deprive them financially. But, you know, when folks stay grounded and focus, they produce a level of work that you don't see from other artists who are running Heather and Yon. You know, I mean, it's like if you're running around the country, you know, there's a really big LA artist who I won't name, and hopefully you don't figure it out by what I'm saying, but they're so prolific. When they put out a product, you're like, you didn't work very hard on this, huh? <laughs> and really, they couldn't, because they were doing other stuff. Um, right. And so that, um, you know, that that's key. Uh, and then And then the other thing is, artistry so to me like tyler and kendrick are really artists so they don't worry that neither of them has to worry that if you haven't heard from them in a while then you're going to forget mm. i think that's important I because think every time they put something out it's like nothing you've ever heard well with that let's give them a shout out la legacy is important I think we're going to continue right in the future. Thank you for listening to our special bonus episode of MHD Off the Record. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode where you can get more insight from MHD and his guests about South LA history, culture, and opportunities. Also, don't forget to like, share, and rate us five stars.